Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. How's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode 50. Hope everybody's having a great week out there. Uh, If you are tuning in on the day of publishing, you will notice that we are publishing a little bit early this week. We uh, have made the administrative decision to start publishing episodes on Wednesday. Just makes life a little bit easier for us here at the Drum Shuffle, uh, especially when I'm out doing gigs and sessions on the weekends. Uh, So Wednesday is going to be your day from here on out. Have a wonderful interview for you today. We're going to be joined by Charlie Mills. Uh, Charlie is a New Jersey native, uh, has played with Skid Row, D. Snyder solo band, and Charlie is doing a lot of great work right now as a recovery counselor and life coach. So we'll be joined by him right after this message from Lost Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Lost Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Lost Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, uh, coming right up. Uh, great interview with Charlie Mills. As I said earlier, uh, Charlie spent some time in the band Skid Row, um, did a lot of great work with D. Snyder's solo uh, band in the late 90s. Uh, appeared on one of their live records uh, and did a lot of really good touring with D. And Charlie's story is so inspirational because like so many guys in in the rock and roll world, um, Charlie battled some demons and he decided to do something about it. And now he is using his talents to help others as a recovery counselor and a life coach. And Charlie is just one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. So I was very pleased to get him on the show. So help me welcome to the drum shuffle, Charlie Mills. Hey, good morning, Charlie. How you doing, brother? 
Hey, Jamie, what's happening, man? How things with you? Uh, things are great. Uh, listen, I want to right off the bat, thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the Drum Shuffle. We really do appreciate it. No worries. Always great to talk to drummers about drums and, and all things, you know, anything that's that concerns hitting stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's talk. Yeah. This, cra- <laughs> this crazy life that we all lead, right? <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> well, Charlie, you know, I mean, kind of our tradition here on the drum shuffle is to start at the beginning. Um, so if you don't mind, kind of walk us through, you know, your your younger years and how you ended up getting into drumming to begin with. Yeah, sure. Uh, a lot of it's a blur. I think uh, when I first found out that uh, I could pick up sticks and, and hit things in a kind of a rhythmic not no nonsensical fashion. I think uh, Johnson might have been in office, so uh, it was a, a long time ago. But you know, as a, as a young kid, I did all the things that young kids in the in the late sixties and early seventies do. You know, I played sports and I was in scouts and all those other things. But there was always something inside of me that that kind of nothing along those lines really fit. I enjoyed them all. But something wasn't quite right. And I remember the first time sitting behind a drum kit with a pair of sticks in my hand. It was at my friend Mark's house. And uh, and it just made sense, you know, sitting down and just banging out a little two and four groove on, on his kit. And I remember the only thing that, that he had to tell me was, hey, man, when you hit a crash cymbal, hit the bass drum at the same time. And that was <laughs> yeah. like a light bulb moment going off. But it was in that moment that I really realized looking back, Jamie, that uh, I really believe that drumming chose me rather than uh, the other way around. And, uh, you know, all through my teen years, it, it became really obvious that everything else was going to fall by the wayside and that I was just going to continually, uh, you know, look to improve and, and see how to connect with other musicians and make sense of this drumming thing. Um, you know, like I said, it chose me. I didn't choose it. And, uh, you know, I did. I guess I did the typical things that we all do when we're teenagers. You know, you put a little basement band together or a garage band, and and you start figuring out how to play the songs that everyone kind of digs. And you go through a myriad of different musicians in junior high and high school. You know, you you spend hours in the basement trying to figure out. For me, it was. Uh, you know, how do you do the intro to rock and roll by Zeppelin? There was no YouTube at the time. It was simply <laughs> yeah. picking the needle up on the, on the, on the vinyl and dropping the needle down a scowillion time yeah. to try to figure out what John Henry was doing in the intro. And let's not even talk about the challenge that the ending, uh, proved to be to a young guy with no teacher, you know? So, um, that was, uh, that really was the, kind of the thrust of everything all through high school was just trying to figure out how to make this all work. And, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate in the seventies, there was a thriving club scene here in the New York, New Jersey area. If you want some background onto how important, uh, the New York, New Jersey club scene was in the seventies to the development of rock and, and the, the surge in 80s metal that's always associated with like the Sunset Strip. Brother, you got to go watch the Twisted Sister documentary on uh, on Netflix. It provides a brilliant history lesson for anyone interested uh, on what was going on. And I was a, I was right in the middle of all of it. I was a young, wide-eyed uh, kid looking to 
play music as much and as often as I possibly could. So that was, you know, going to clubs and watching live music five, seven nights a week was, it was like going to church. It was going to school. It was, uh, you know, it was going to, to the temple brother and, and, you know, making your sacrifice and, and praying to the gods that one day perhaps you would get lifted up and brought onto that stage to make music together. And that was, that was kind of the genesis of everything for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you, you said, you know, I went through a myriad of musicians in the basement bands and all that stuff. Um, and I want to make sure mm-hmm. I get this in here. You know, I did the same thing, you know, and, and I feel like we're, you know, on a cosmic plane, we're, we're the same person, Charlie, because drumming chose me as well. You know what I'm saying? It's just, sure. I knew by the time I was 11 years old, this is what I was going to do. You know, I mean, there were, mm-hmm. there was no firefighter. There was no astronaut. You know, it was like, what are you going to be when you grow up? I'm going to be a drummer. You know, I mean, that's just all there was to it. But, you know, the difference between you and I is, you know, I had a myriad of musicians in the basement bands when I was a teenager. One of them just wasn't John Bon Jovi, you know, that you, you did have that going for you. You know, you were. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Saraville being in such close proximity to the city and by the city, I mean, New York City. You know, there was always a lot of hustle and bustle back and forth. New York in the late 70s, early 80s was arguably the the epicenter of everything. The punk movement was happening 20 miles north of my house. Uh, I grew up in Saraville, which is, uh, you know, a couple of exits down the New Jersey turnpike from from New York City. And we would often make the pilgrimage into the city and and walk by those hallowed halls like CBGB's and Kenny's Castaways and Great Gildersleeves and Tramps and all the places in the city, the Palladium, uh, New York Palladium on 14th Street, all these places that had this, you know, that had either national or, or big local acts coming through. And, uh, yeah, and Johnny and I, you know, we went to high school together. He was a year behind me. He transferred over from a Catholic school. And uh, John was an odd duck in that he had, you know, his father was a hairdresser and his mom was a former Playboy bunny. And uh, John was a freak for the Asbury Jukes and Bruce Springsteen. And, you know, all the guys I was hanging out with were, you know, into Zeppelin and, and Leonard Skinner and Deep Purple and Humble Pie and uh, and Rush and Yes and UFO. And uh, so John was a bit of an anomaly. But once I started doing a bit of a dive into what some of the things he was listening to uh, were, I, I was I was instantly moved in a different direction. And the minute I heard the the original the band we had was the Atlantic City Expressway it was a big 10 piece horn band that John just willed together how do you get 10 guys in high school into a basement <laughs> like three nights a week John was the guy that pulled that together you know yeah and uh and John was arguably the worst musician uh, out of all of us you know he couldn't really play much of anything but that guy had a, a drive and a focus that, you know, let's face it, the guy got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame 35 years later. So, uh, and, I, and I think Stern, Howard Stern, in, in his opening remarks upon their in, in, induction, said, you know, listen, 125 million records these guys sold. And, and Howard made it more to the point, 125 million of anything. When's the last time you saw, can you even fathom 125 million of anything and and it really that hit me like a like a ton of bricks in that moment you know here's this kid that 35 years before we were in the basement 
you know, practicing Jukes tunes and Asbury Jukes tunes and, and Springsteen songs and some R&B tunes and, uh, and trying to not all beat the hell out of each other, you know, uh, over our differences of opinions and, and everything else. And somehow we would, you know, we ended up putting two or three good sets together of music and we played pretty well and a lot of energy having a horn band in back of you, man. If you've never played with a, a five piece horn section in back of you, that's something to behold, even at that young age. And, uh, and, and just a side note, you know, like Dave Bryan wasn't in the band at the time. Uh, the, the main trumpet player was this guy, Al Chez, who ended up playing in the Letterman's band for 15 years until Letterman disbanded his band. So uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of notoriety. All those guys are still playing to this day. Yeah. In the well, expressway. And yeah, I think we all know what John did. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's amazing to me, you know, and, and I guess it just goes to show you never know, right? I mean, th- there is somebody out there who played with Bruce before Bruce was Bruce. You know, there are mm-hmm. those who, and you just never really know. And, you know, I don't want to take anything away from, from your amazing career, but, you know, you stayed, you know, after Bon Jovi kind of took off, you were still in that Jersey scene. And, you know, it's, I guess, famously or infamously now, John helped a young New Jersey band called Skid Row get signed. Um, you know, he really helped push them. They did a lot of opening shows for Bon Jovi. And you ended up as mm-hmm. the drummer in Skid Row as well. So, I mean, there's kind of that that weaving uh, thread of yarn that we uh, that, that we all follow. Right. Yeah, there was um, you know, I was uh, I can't tell this story or this timeline without really mentioning that uh, that, you know, I fell into the trappings or the pitfalls, let's just say, of a lot of the rock and roll lifestyle. You know, I had this image that I wanted to be John Bonham or Keith Moon or, or Keith Richards at the time. And, and last I checked, two of them are dead. And one, a case could be made for, yeah, he died 20 years ago. He's still standing and no one kind of gets it. But, you know, living that sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle every night is Saturday night kind of caught up with me. Uh, I went, you know, I've been in recovery for a long time. I've been in and out of recovery since... Almost, you know, four or five years after I picked up drumsticks, you know, I, I, uh, it, drugs and alcohol had been a problem for me since uh, as early as the early 80s. And uh, I went into treatment in 85. And uh, when I got out, I realized I needed to make a shift. And I called Snake, who was several years younger than me. And, and Snake said, listen, Chuckles, we, I want to put something together. I want to write. You know, John at the time uh, hadn't yet released Slippery When Wet, which was the, the turning point for him. And, uh, we, but we all knew that it was possible to write good songs together, put a band together and access people in the record industry that could give us some guidance and give us a shot. There was a thriving record industry there. And yeah, John was definitely a conduit, uh, to access some of the people and the players in that world. So uh, when I got out of treatment, I needed to make a change and I, I snake said, listen, let's do something. So I, I threw in my hat and for the next several months, Snake and I, uh, with a couple of other local Jersey guys, you know, we we put together the beginnings of Skid Row. Most notably, uh, Dave had found this kid Jimmy Southworth, who was a bass player in another band that was down in uh, down at the Jersey Shore, and we were paying him. He was later to change his name to Rachel Bolin, but we were paying. Uh, Rachel to come up and and rehearse with us. He was a hired gun for the first several months. Uh, of Skid Row. We did one gig together and then I, I got jammed up 
soon after our, our inaugural gig as Skid Row, uh, I got involved in an altercation that uh, changed the course of everything for me. I had to leave the music industry altogether. I had to stop playing for a little while. I was, uh, and I got sober. And for the next 10 years, uh, I was clean and sober and, uh, you know, I, I had to kind of, I was in a holding pattern for a couple of years. There were some legal actions that, that fell into my lap and I had to kind of be accountable for that. And right around 92, 93, uh, I was working full time, sober five years, married a year, uh, working in, in New York city in the printing industry and still playing constantly trying to figure out how to make a living of this skid row by that time, as you had said had uh, gone through several personnel changes. Rob Afuso was now the drummer. They had had their, uh, their debut record was done and dusted, and they were in the middle of recording the second record. Uh, or actually, they released the second record, Slave to the Grind, and they were on the road with Pantera. And uh, I remember seeing them at, uh, at the Felt Forum, which was the old theater at, at Madison Square Garden, and thinking, wow, look how far these guys have all come. Uh, these guys are amazing. And, and again, how do I, how do I jump into that? You know, there were lots of people that were pulling for me, but really to make that, that shift took a moment. And and I'll tell you that, uh, you know, late at night after a local cover gig somewhere around 93, again, I'm working full time in the city and I'm married and, and I get home to my condo and I turn on the TV cause I can't really go right to sleep after a gig. I don't know about you or anybody else that's listening to this, but <laughs> it takes me a couple hours to wind down and, uh, and there was this guy, Tony Robbins, uh, on late night TV, he was doing these infomercials, uh, through a company called Gutsy Ranker. And, you know, he was, I, I didn't know much about him. He looked, you know, at the time, I guess you'd call him a, a motivational speaker or he had this program on how to design your life. It was called personal power. And I had seen it a couple of times on these late night infomercials. And finally, one day I said, you know, something he said, I don't remember what it was, but it resonated with me. And I said, screw it let me spend the hundred bucks. And, and I spent the hundred bucks. And, and then the next week or so I got a phone call, uh, from a producer friend of mine, his name is Vic Pepe. And, and, uh, he said, you need to come down and, and listen to this band down the Jersey shore. He sent me a tape and I listened to the music and it was awesome at the time. And, uh, and I went down and met the guys and we agreed to get together in a room and start playing a little bit. And so I brought my stuff down and we played together. And, I got a feeling from the first 10 minutes in that room that there was something really different about these guys. It was a three-piece band. Uh, you know, I, I was to find out that the bass player's name is Derek Taylor, who is now uh, a 15-year and running guitar. He's the guitar player in Overkill, the thrash metal icons from, from Jersey here. Uh, and Tony Palmucci, the guitar player, was formerly in a couple of like B-level signed acts, Baton Rouge. He played with Keel for a couple of years when he was living in Los Angeles and going to uh, GIT. So there was some pedigree there. Uh, and Charlie Sabin was the original singer. He was from a, a band in a city called Toxic. They were kind of a, a prog metal band from the late 80s, early 90s. They, everybody had deals. And uh, so we would all, we, everyone had tasted a little bit of it. We all agreed that this was going to be a great moment, but, and we could be a great band, but I'll tell you, Jamie, here's the linchpin, man. And this is what no one, this was the, the head turner for me. When we're sitting, we went and sat in this van that, that the band had bought together to have the discussion on how to put us together as a band. And I remember it was just odd. And, and Tony Palmucci, who was the de facto leader said, you know, we, we want to cut this deal in the van brother, cause we're going to live in this van. 
over the next year, we're going to spend a lot of time in this van. I'm like, okay, great. You know, and, yeah. and Tony Famous said, here's what you words. need to do. <laughs> yeah, no, bro, you have no idea. He said, listen, this is what you got to do. If you want to be in this band and we want you, we desperately want you. We think you'd be a great fit. You need to do a couple of things. The first thing is you got to go and quit your job. The second thing is you got to tell your wife you're selling your townhouse and you're going to move down here to the Jersey shore into the band house. <laughs> and, uh, and then you have to really get used to the fact that we rehearse every day from 9.30 in the morning. We start playing at 10 o'clock, and we play until 4 in the afternoon, six days a week. Wow. And I looked at him, and I said, wait a minute. Dude, I'm married like a year. I'm making like almost six figures a year in the printing industry. This is early 90s money. And we're, you know, we used to call ourselves, my ex-wife and I used to say we were, we were dinks double income, no kids. Yeah. Uh, and we were able to save some money and, and live a nice little life. And he said, listen, you can't expect full-time results from a part-time job. And I said, wait, a minute. that stopped me in my tracks, Jamie. I said, wait a minute, where'd you get that from? I never heard anyone, any guitar player, let alone, hair, let alone a long-haired, scraggly guy living in a band house with three other stanky-ass musicians say something like this. He said, listen, think about it. You can't expect full-time results from a part-time job. And I said, where did that come from? He goes, well, I, I did this, this, this tape program called Personal Power, and right there, yeah, I said, the sun, the, the moon, the stars all lined up. I said, uh, I asked him, the Anthony Robbins thing? He said, yeah, I've got it on cassette. I listen to it every day now for the past 18 months. It's awesome. I said, holy shit, I just ordered it on CD like a week ago. And needless to say, I went home and discussed it with my wife. I, uh, within a month, I quit my job and I didn't sell my townhouse and I didn't move down to the Jersey shore, but six days a week, I was in that basement from nine thirty in the morning till three thirty, four o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, and from there I, you know, how do you make a living? Well, the mantra was sticks in my hands, uh, anything with sticks in my hands, whether it was a wedding band, a club date, teaching, I built a teaching practice and, uh, you know, I, I quickly got up to 50 or 60 students, way too much for me to handle. So I formed an alliance with a drum store and, and had a couple of teachers underneath me and was getting a cut of their teaching. So I built a little business model. And uh, and quickly, I was up to a sustainable amount of money within a year with sticks in my hands, all because I jumped out of the airplane or, you know, I got onto the shore and just like Cortez, I burned my ships. There yeah. was no going back to the printing industry. There was no going back to that comfortable life. I was going to be a full-time musician. And here's the interesting thing. I don't think I got exponentially better as a musician within that, the first couple of months. But once word started getting around that I was a full-time guy, other full-time guys were calling me for dates. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah it's I'll tell you, Jamie, it was, it was freakish, man. I'm like... Why is my phone ringing? And I started working six or seven nights a month, which at that time, you know, it was a buck and a half, 200 bucks cash. Yeah. Like that was okay money. That was okay money, you know? And, and I thought it was really weird. It really comes down to other full-time guys respect the effort, the sacrifice. You know, there's that line that says a fisherman can see a kindred spirit from afar. And that was kind of what was happening in my life because I had burned my ships and because I had, had started walking through the wilderness of how to make a living as a musician, other people that had 
preceded me into the jungle were looking to give me a hand and, and really respecting what I was doing uh, just by doing it. So the momentum had begun. And uh, I can tell you the happy ending to the story was within a thousand days. Oh, well, really? Well, well, that soon? Just a, just, a, just a hair over two years. Uh, the band that we were in, and we called the band Strength, we were opening up for D. Snyder's band Widowmaker at a local New Jersey club here, which we thought was great. Now, I had been seeing Twisted Sister in clubs since 79, and I, they were just – if you didn't see them in clubs in, in the 70s and early 80s, you didn't see Twisted Sister because the Twisted Sister on a, on a concert stage is insanely different. It's, it's nowhere near the ferocity that Twisted in a club was. There was an energy and a rawness that, that – a big stage just doesn't hold for them. Not to say they're not awesome, but to see D Snyder in a club is a very, very special thing. We saw Widowmaker. Joey Franco was playing drums. Uh, I don't know if you've talked to Joey yet, but we got to hook you up with Joe. And uh, it, it was, it was Al Petrelli playing guitar. Widowmaker were great. We start playing and uh, they're D's road manager. I, I look over and I see D watching us. I'm like, wow, what's going on here, man? That's pretty cool. And after we get done, we break down our gear. Our, our road crew is loading it up into the van, and Dee's road manager comes up and says, dude, he wants to talk to you. <laughs> I, I said, what? And I'm thinking I did something wrong, Jamie. Yeah, we're getting kicked off the tour, right? <laughs> well, it wasn't even a tour. It was a one-night thing, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, my God, did you do something like did we knock in, in, into something? Did somebody do like, I, I didn't know what the hell was going on. And we, I get pulled into the dressing room and he's like, Hey man, I'm D. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> and, uh, and yes. we start talking for him and he says, listen, I'm looking to do this. Uh, I'm looking to put together a band and, uh, and it's going to be uh, comprised of myself. And I want four hungry guys in back of me, local guys. It's just going to be for about 10 or 12 shows. And it's just going to be here in Jersey, New York, New Jersey area. We're going to play some of the clubs here that Twisted Sister used to play. And I'm going to do all Twisted Sister material. I said, wow, that's, that's pretty fucking cool. He says, yeah, I'm going to call it D. Snyder's Sick Motherfuckers, uh, named after the, uh, the Twisted Sister fan club. I said, okay, count me in. And uh, he said, I, I, I'm all, what do, you, do you think your other guys would, would like to be involved? I said, well, let's, well, let's ask him. So as it turns out, he had two guitar players already, but Derek Taylor, the bass player from Strength, my bass player, and I threw our hats in the ring and we started playing with D. We did 15 shows with D. And then one of the guitar players dropped out and, uh, and D said, you guys have any suggestions? I said, yeah. How about you hire Tony Palmucci? How about Strength is your backup band with Keith Alexander, uh, being your second guitar player, who was the original SMF guitar player. How about all four of us are your backup band? We can rehearse in the band house down in Tom's River. You don't have to pay for rehearsals. We can, we'll do everything. We'll break them in. It's, it's a no brainer. And that's how within a thousand days, Tony Palmucci, Derek Taylor, and I ended up in front of 60,000 people uh, night after night at playing festivals all across Europe in the summer of, I think it was 97. That's incredible. I mean, you know, it, 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 just kind of a, ch a chance encounter and you end up in, you know, that situation. How awesome is that? 
you know, success is really just having the tools, having everything ready, having your mindset prepared uh, and having the, you know, being prepared when opportunity knocks, that's it. And just being fearless enough to jump out of the airplane and take advantage of it, Jamie. You know, we didn't make any, we didn't make or break anything. We were rehearsing and writing and doing these local shows way outside the New York area as strength uh, for the better part of a year. And we just happened to be offered opening for D and D just happened to be thinking about doing something outside the box uh, away from Widowmaker. And he just happened to see us that night. And, uh, and the rest is kind of history. And, and, you know, from, I'm going to say 96 to 98, we went back and forth to Europe half a dozen times. We did a couple of tours uh, of the Northeast here. We went out to, to LA. We did a whole, Pacific Northwest tour. We played Anchorage, Alaska. We played all through Canada. You know, we lived in a van for six weeks at a clip with D and got to spend some great time with D. D also a huge Tony Robbins fan. Uh, his life was completely altered by that exact same program, that personal power program that Tony Palmucci and I had both done a few years prior. So it was a pretty revolutionary time, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it, I think it was Rod Morgenstein, who is one of my all-time favorite drummers. When I had him on the show, he said something to me that has really resonated with me since we did the interview a few months ago. He said, luck always uh, favors the prepared. And, you know, mm-hmm. nobody had ever said that to me before. And I was like, you know, he's exactly right. Luck does favor the prepared. If you're prepared for anything, um, you know, you, you get a whole lot luckier, Right. Yeah, you just say yes, and you figure it out as you go. You know, you have to have, let's face it, if we're talking drums, there are certain things you have to have. You know, you have to be proficient. You have to have great time. You have to have great feel. Uh, Billy Ward, not from Black Sabbath. Billy Ward, one of my all-time favorite guys. He's a New York guy now, and uh, we've been kind of good friends for the past several years. Uh, We we do this thing called the New York Drum Club. It's kind of an excuse for a bunch of New York-based drummers to get together and have some lunch. Billy says, you know, think about it. You've got to be able to hang for the, you know, the the 22 and a half hours that you're on the bus because you're only on stage for an hour and a half. You got to be able to, and Billy's phrase is, you got to be able to give good bus. (laughs) (laughs) Meaning you got to be able to hang in the back lounge, not be, let's, you know, not be a dick and get along with, you know, 11 other very, very distinct personalities in a, in a 50 foot long aluminum tube for months at a clip. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, so, uh, those words have been said on this show. I, I countless times it's, you know, you it, just a cursory search of the internet. You can find a monster player right now in two seconds mm-hmm. that is probably mm-hmm. looking for a gig. It's not about finding a great player to join a band. That's the easy part. It's the 22 hours, 23 hours that that person has to spend with everybody else that that every band is looking for. Who is going to have the chemistry as a human being to be in this group? Not necessarily just the musicianship. I mean, I think that's a a huge part of it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I don't think we talk enough about it. You know, in the coaching world, we talk about state. You know, how are you showing up? Are you showing up in a position of fear and uncertainty and lack and uh, resentment, perhaps, or anger? 
or are you showing up in a, in a position of confidence and comfortability and passion and fun and curiosity? Because I don't know about you, but that's the guy that I want to be because that's the guy that draws other people that are like that. That's the guy because I've been on the road when I've been pissed off and angry for, for days and weeks at a time. Entire tours I've done uh, where I've just been bitter and evil, man, and I was not a good guy to be around. And I've been with other guys like that on the road. And it's just, it's not fun, man. It's not fun. Life is so much better. Playing music is so much better when you're maintaining that state of gratitude and grace that says, I get to make music for a living. Yeah. I get to go out on the road and see the world and meet all kinds of great people. And, and talented, amazingly talented people that you're never going to hear their names. A monitor engineers, front of house guys, lighting designers, you know, the greatest people I've met were, have been the runners at some of the clubs we played, man, that, that have done nothing but say, Hey man, how can I make tonight better for you? I know you guys got, you know, you've got a 10 hour drive when you leave here. How can I, what can I do for you to make your drive better before you leave? I've had, you know, the fans that you meet, when especially doing van and trailer tours, man, I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, hey, no, take my bed. I'll sleep on the couch tonight. You guys have been sleeping on couches for days. Like, yeah. How awesome is that? You know, and it's all because when you're throwing out that good vibe, you get the people that give you that good vibe coming back at you. It's kind of the law of the universe, I guess, Jamie. I, I don't know what your take is, but that's definitely been my experience. Well, it, it is kind of the law of the universe. And, you know, I don't want to gloss anything over here. Okay. And, you know, I, I want to get into what you're doing today, but, you know, sure. one, one of the things that, you know, that, that I have learned um, is that there are many, many great bands that get torn apart because somebody is fighting a personal demon or two or three guys are fighting personal demons while they're out there on the road. And I think mm -hmm. people on the outside, on the periphery, looking into a band, you know, I can remember being a kid thinking, God, what a great life. You know, you're never in the same place two days in a row. You get to see the world. You get to play concerts. You're making a living, you know, doing what you love. It's just, you know, it's the land of milk and honey. At least it was to, to, <laughs> to my young brain. And then I, you know, my band, we started going on the road a little bit and, and playing shows out of town. And I was like, holy mother, this is hard. You know, this is not easy. It, it sucks being away from home. It sucks mm -hmm. dealing with 22 hours of sheer boredom for that 90 minute set that you get to do. So you have mm -hmm. these enormous highs every night when you play your show and then 22 hours of the lowest of low. You know, some nights you don't get a shower. Some nights you you have to sleep sitting up in the van while you're driving to the next gig or whatever the case may be. <clears throat> and I think so many of us have those stories. A lot of guys start, you know, as you said, getting into the alcohol, the drugs. Um, you know, it's just it's a story that is that develops time after time after time. And I know that, you know, you fought those demons, as you've already mentioned, but at some point you decided you're going to help others and you became a, a, you know, a substance abuse counselor, really a, a recovery advocate. 
And, you know, something that that I have not disclosed on this show, but by the time your episode airs, I will have picked up my first bronze token. You know, I'll be a year sober (laughs) in December of 18. So, you know, I had to make the decision as a 40 year old man, I've drank enough. You know, I've drank enough for three men probably, but my career is not going anywhere. What can I change? Right. And Mm -hmm. When I stopped drinking, good stuff started happening for me. So, uh, again, you know, all of that is to say, I don't want to gloss anything over in your career, but I really want you Mm -hmm. to kind of speak to that transition from life of the party, Charlie, to sober Charlie and how much different things are for you today than they were, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, great, uh, great question. Great segue. And uh, again, from one kindred spirit to another kudos on that first year. It's uh, the first year of sobriety is always uh, a challenge. It's always full of, you know, the first, the first Christmas, the first birthday, uh, you know, the first time you have sex sober in a long time, (laughs) the first time you do a gig sober around people drink, you know, there's so many firsts that, that, that are so impactful. You're almost like a kid going to Disneyland for the first time at 40 years old, but the day, the soft spot is, and this is one guy, uh, it, it's been 14 years again, continuous sobriety for me. So, uh, from one guy to another, I, I will say that year two, year two, the sophomore year is the dangerous year because you've got all of this and you've done all your firsts. And now you think you've got something going on, but it's really, really essential that we hold close to an, uh, an empowering environment to close to your guys in that, that second year. That was the biggest challenge. You know, my first, my first sober tour, really sober tour, uh, was was teching for Derek Sherinian uh, with Billy Idol. I celebrated my first year in 2005. Uh, I got my I picked up my first bronze AA coin in a meeting uh, down in in Florida on the road with Idol, and uh, I wasn't playing. I was just teching. It was a uh, I, I I was substituting for my friend Lindsay Vanoy. Lindsay split duties between uh, Derek Sherinian and Elton John. And Elton, in the fall of 2005, found himself without an auxiliary keyboard player because Lindsay had been in the Elton camp for several years at that point, and everyone knew Lindsay could play. Elton uh, personally called Lindsay and said, hey, listen, I need you for six weeks uh, for Europe not to tech, but I need you to play and be on stage with me. Can you make that happen? And uh, Lindsay, the consummate professional, said... uh, Elton, give me, can I ask you for 24 hours? I need to make sure that my current gig is covered. I am saying yes. I just need to make sure that I can get someone to cover my current gig that I'm contracted for through the end of the year. And Elton said I would expect nothing less. And Lindsay immediately called me and said, dude, can you do this for me? I'm like, what the hell do I know about setting up keys? He's like, no, no, no. I'm going to set everything up for you. All you, you Nothing's going to break down. All you got to do is set them up and tear them down every night. And I did. And I went on the road, you know, at about 11 and a half months sober. And I celebrated a year sober on the road in Florida. And, and then, you know, I came home in December with a, a hell of a lot of money. And, uh, and the experience of saying uh, to others that, listen, we can do anything. We can live a life, our best life, as long as I don't, you know, indulge in that thing that tore it all down in the first place. I can do anything. Yeah. And that was proof. Yeah, that was the proof. Uh, you know, I had relapsed in 96 after 10 years 
without a drink or a drug. And the next couple of years, I transitioned out of D. Snyder's band, and I got offered the the uh, the Skid Row gig again. And for two years, I played with those guys, uh, and I was struggling to come to grips with a not sober life again. I was trying to drink and use other chemicals uh, recreationally when nothing but addictive behavior was, was running through my veins at the time. So, uh, and you know, now you're on the, now I'm on the road and I'm, I'm out on a major tour. We, we were opening for Kiss and Ted Nugent in the fall of 2000 or in the uh, spring of 2000. And, you know, it was, there were great moments, you know, every night getting on stage in front of 18,000 people. There were great moments. There was also moments of insane dysfunction. You know, uh, there were members in that, in that touring entourage, uh, in the Skid Row camp that were dealing with mental illness. There was substance abuse as well. Uh, there was a lot of personality clashes. There was a lot of power struggle and, uh, there was a, a shitload of ego and, uh, and I'm not going to say that I wasn't complicit in a lot of that. I was an active addict, you know, in my cups and I was making people feel uncomfortable, but it was just one facet of, of a lot of dysfunction that was going on in that bus. And I, in the middle of the tour, I just said, guys, I got to go. And I walked off the tour and Phil Verone came in from Saigon kick. He came in and replaced me. And, uh, you know, Phil, there's a great film that Phil did called waking up Dead. Oh yeah, we've had true. we've yeah. had Phil on the show, and you know he said I don't want to I don't want to talk about waking up dead. You know it, it to his credit because it gives him a lot of pain to watch that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. We, Phil and I have talked a couple of times since the transition. You know, I welcomed him into the camp. I had made the decision to leave for a lot of reasons that I'm not going to get into here. Uh, you know, and I just warned Phil what he was getting into, and you know, Phil dealt with it a little different than I did, you know, and, and, uh, waking up dead documents a lot of that. And, uh, you know, it's no big surprise that that flew in the face of what the Skid Row guys really wanted to portray their band as. So they ostracized Phil. If you look on the internet, there's almost nothing about Phil or I uh, on the internet with regards to our tenure in that band, which is kind of sad that, uh, but it's indicative of the, the internet, you know, anybody can rewrite history at any time and, the internet just kind of gave them the opportunity to do that. So, um, but at the end of the day, I got to hang out with Gene Simmons and Ace Freely, and uh, you know, I got to shoot guns at Ted Nugent's house and eat muskrat and walleye and all kinds <laughs> of crazy crap. And uh, of you course, know, the you only did. time I've ever fired a hand. Yeah, no, the only time I ever fired a handgun in my life was Ted Nugent's uh, nickel-plated, you know, forty-five that he pulled out of his holster and, and wrapped his arms around me, and he used to call me Snuckles. Said Snuckles, just ease back on the trigger there, son. And uh, we were shooting bowling balls at us. I like you can't pay for those kinds of experiences. Yeah, you know, you just you can't pay for those experiences. So it was it was amazing. But you know, the addiction part was catching up, and I came home, and uh, you know, I I my addiction was so so debilitating. I got divorced, and uh, in two thousand, and and I, I went through a bunch of other businesses for a couple of years, and. Uh, finally, in 2004, right around uh, Halloween, I said, I can't do this anymore. And I got sober and I, I had, I started teaching again. Uh, I started teaching drums again. And I think music and drumming and the, the drumming community really kind of began to bring me back to health, Jamie, knowing and getting in touch with 
that thing that had chosen me uh, probably, you know, 30 years before by this time. Because by now, you know, I'm in my early 40s when I'm getting sober again in 2004. And uh, I'm teaching, you know, four or five nights a week. And then I start playing in local bands four or five nights a week. And, uh, you know, I built up a little local career and a local teaching practice again. And I was I was happy as a bug in, in a rug. I was good, man. I was connected to that thing that uh, that drove me again. I was making music with amazing musicians. Some of the guys, you know... I always say that the Jersey Shore is uh, is so full of the most amazing musicians that you will never hear of, just because it's just the nature. Maybe it's the proximity to to the city and, and Philadelphia, that triangulation. Uh, but I got to tell you, Jamie, some of the best musical moments of my entire career were had in very small places with insanely talented musicians playing for hours and hours at a clip together just for the love of making music together. It's special. I mean, it really is. I mean, it's just, you know, at this point in my career, you know, I've kind of given up uh, on, you know, the, the world tour and, and platinum records and, and all that stuff. I mean, rock and roll is a young man's game. I say that quite a bit. Um, Yeah, I agree. But, you know, I have found now in the past year that really all I care about is making good music with people that I love and care about. And at mm-hmm. the at the end of the day, nobody's going to remember your gig on, you know, September 7th, you know, 1999. You know, nobody's going to remember mm-hmm. that. So I have kind of switch gears and said, I want to record as much as I possibly can because that lives forever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but you said that year of first, and I can only speak from personal experience. You know, the first time I went and did a bar gig with my band, um, as a sober guy, you know, I, I almost, you know, had to call somebody to go babysit me. You know, I, I ended up <laughs> not doing that, but you know, you just don't have that trust for yourself. And, and now uh-huh. it's, you know, those things don't bother me. You know, it, it's, right. it makes me more uncomfortable if somebody doesn't drink around me. You know what I mean? If I know they want to order a beer at dinner and they order, you know, a sweet tea instead, that makes me more uncomfortable. Um, then, sure. you know, then just be you, let me be me kind of thing. You know, um, you do yeah, you and I'll do me. Yeah, there's a phrase we have in the coaching community that, that says where focus goes, energy flows. If I'm focusing on, on you know, somebody drinking, you know, a nice, tall pint of Guinness and it's got the right amount of foam at the top and, oh, look at the beads of sweat on the outside of the pint. And, you know, if I romance something. Where focus goes, energy. But yeah, I'm going to start getting squirrely and pissy and antsy. And but if I just realize that, hey, man, I, you know, the world drinks. I just choose not to because I have to remember I have a choice. I just choose not to drink today. I, I kind of know what happens, but after a while, I've been conditioned to a point where I just I don't look at it anymore. You know, my my fiance Diane. You know, we've got. Uh, she loves wine. You know, she's got a great wine collection here at the house. She, it's, it's something that she just loves with her doing with her family. And, uh, and you know, when the family comes over, there's always corks popping and I don't even see it. No one gets drunk 
No one acts the way I did. <laughs> Jesus, man, I'd have a bottle, I'd drink the second bottle, and then I'd make the phone call and end up in the city for three days. Right. Because that's the way I drink. Right. That's not the way most of the world drinks. <laughs> right. Yeah, you can't project your problems onto everybody else. I mean, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's really important. And, you know, for whatever reason, I think a lot of musicians, and you're, you know, way more educated to speak to this, but at some point, I feel like the creative types, whether it's a musician, an actor, uh, you know, a writer, the creative types, you know, when they drink or, or you know, use drugs rec- recreationally around their art, the two things somehow get commingled in, in, in our brains. You know, it used to be I had the ritual of, well, I've got to have exactly, you know, two beers before the the first set i'll drink a beer between the first and second set you know it, it became this ritual i i forgot that i could do it without those things why is it that mm-hmm. that creatives meld the the bad things into their art do you have an answer no, i don't think there's one definitive answer i think it's so individualistic that one answer would just do a disservice i think uh for all of us you know you you you, key, you hit a key word, a ritual. Rituals are learned behaviors. You know, rituals imply if you do it, you're going to f- get something good from it. And if you don't do it, you're going to hell, right? I, whenever I hear the word ritual, I always think religion and church uh, right away. <clears throat> you know, if you, if you do go to confession and you go to mass, uh, you're going to go to hell. You got a better shot at, at getting through the pearly gates. <laughs> and if you don't, well, <laughs> you're going south with the rest of your friends. So, uh, you know, when we, when we associate a ritual with something and it's, it's a, it's a, uh, an anabolic ritual, something that's going to rip the life away from you, then you need to make a, make a change, you know, but the, the beginning of it all really, it begins with identifying that ritual as not being productive. You know, uh, like you had said, you know, my ritual was two beers, first set, one beer, second set, no shots until this, the break between the second and third set, if you're doing the typical three set night, you know, I, maybe that was a ritual. Uh, I can tell you that it was, for me, it was, you know, a handle a crown and, and maybe Coke if, if there was, you know, Coca-Cola there and, and then making the phone call or seeing who's got some other dry goods around, you know, it was, that was the ritual. That was the life because that was the way I pictured. That was the vision I had when I was a kid and I was reading Circus Magazine and Cream Magazine and, and reading stories about John Henry Bonham and, and Keith Moon and Keith Richards and all my heroes. I wanted to emulate them. Yeah. So I wanted, yeah, I, want, I thought that, well, isn't that what you do? You know, but yeah. when you, you get to a certain age and you realize that, yeah, that's not really working for me as a lifestyle choice. I have to make a switch. You know, you do a couple of things, you know, you define the problem in a solvable way. Hey, my life goes better when I'm not doing those things. I'm more balanced. I'm more focused. I'm more grateful. People want to hang out with me. I'm not ripping through people's lives. So the problem is don't get high, you know, and I need to condition that behavior. And that's where 12 step meetings come in. That's where all the things that, you know, if, if you're, uh, if you're having an issue with substances that there's tons of recourse, you know, and, and furthermore, you know, uh, surround yourself with that environment and condition the change and make sure that you always pay attention to the leverage that brought you there in the first place. My life ended up being three hefty bags. Uh, I couldn't even get my drums out of a, a storage locker because I was two months behind on the rent. You know, my life, my addictive life in 2004 had taken everything away from me. 
But once I made the decision to stop indulging in those substances, now all of a sudden my ability to connect with other human beings came flooding back. My, my empathy came back. My humor came back. My, uh, my love for life came back. My attentiveness to my mother came back. My ability to stay in a relationship and build new relationships began to grow and develop in a way that I didn't really see. I started turning into a human being that I really wanted to be, you know, and, uh, and after a while, you kind of realize like yourself, you know, the platinum, the chase for the platinum record and, and the record deal and all the music business from the time I was a kid in the, in the seventies the and eighties to now is 180 degrees. And I realized that there was something else. So, you know, what is it about making music that I loved? I, well, I love being in a band. I love being on a team. Uh, I love the creative process, but I, I, I love doing it with other people around. So, you know, for a while I was, I was doing home improvements. I was a contractor along with being a musician. Why? Because I got to be on a team because I got to be creative in a way that lasted, you know, you go and rip somebody's bathroom apart and build it back up again within a week. And every time they, they're either sitting down in the morning or they're taking a shower or, or shaving, they're in something that you built for them. Yeah. There's a lot of satisfaction to them, not unlike being able to just record and leave your art for someone to listen to. Um, you know, my, my, my love for teaching took on a whole new dimension, you know, with my, uh, with my gradual immersion into the substance abuse community, the recovery community, I started seeing that I, there was a, a, the performer in me gave me a little bit of an edge in being able to deliver a message. So I started working in the substance abuse treatment field. I started getting educated, going to school to be a counselor. Uh, and then I realized that, you know, that's not really going to bring me the life that I'm looking for. There's some shortcomings in the, uh, in the substance abuse, the traditional treatment model that we all work off of, you know, rehabs aren't as effective uh, for, you know, the current, let's, let's talk about the current opioid epidemic. You know, the treatment model is not really working. Yeah. Uh, the treatment model that everyone knows, the 28 day rehab model was engineered in the late fifties for upper middle class, white American male alcoholics, you know, and it was in efforts to rehabilitate them, bring them back to a life that they already had. A 22 year old opiate addict is a very, very different animal yet. All we have to offer is, hey, we'll detox you for seven or eight days, and then we'll give you this 28-day model that's been in effect for 60 years and really hasn't changed much, and we'll see if it works. And that's why we're seeing so many people die. In my effort to be a creator, to be something different, Jamie, that's why I, that, my, the drive to be able to be more effective, to connect at a higher level, led me to the coaching world and ultimately you know, to, uh, to being invited onto Anthony Robbins coaching team. And, uh, so now, you know, my passion to connect, to perform, uh, is really centered around uh, not just working for Tony and coaching for Tony. I'm, I'm blessed to be a part of that community, but on my own, I have a thing called go beyond recovery, which is a whole program that brings those coaching tools whether they were from Tony or several other people that I love and admire, uh, but they're brought down and, and framed for people in recovery, you know, and not just people in early recovery themselves, but for families, uh, parents, 
siblings, husbands, wives, community members, advocates. I'm a, I'm a voracious advocate here in New Jersey, uh, you know, just trying to connect and break the stigma and, and bring new resources to that community. So, you know, my passion to connect, to perform, to give back all found its, its voice now at 57 years old uh, in taking these coaching skills and, and kind of creating my own thing called Go Beyond Recovery. That's what I'm passionate about these days. Well, and, you know, I mean, I obviously I'm going to say, uh, you know, it's God's work. You know, I, I mean, I think it's it's awesome that that you're doing that. But I think moreover is, you know, helping folks, um, you know, wh- whether it's it's, you know, substance abuse or, you know, mental illness, whatever the case may be you're really available to anybody that needs some coaching in life. Now, you you know, part of me says, oh, this is this new age, you know, weird, you make people feel better about themselves kind of thing, you know, so so I'm going to give the the, the con argument, you know, but, (laughs) and I'm sure you've heard all of that stuff, but really it is, you have taken your passion from the music industry. And, and as you said, you know, my ability to perform and to relate with, you know, the runner at the club all the way up to the, the head of the record label, but you're really working with people from all different walks of life. Correct. Yeah. When I coach, uh, yeah, it's the mantra is always anytime, anywhere, anyone about anything, uh, you know, I'm privileged to be able to coach everyone from, you know, the small studio owner uh, to, you know, a lot of real estate salespeople to, you know, I, I've got several clients uh, in the C-suite and in various industries. You know, these are guys that uh, have been flying on airplanes where the pilot knows them by their first name uh, for decades. <laughs> yeah. You know, guys that are at, at great levels of success and here they are listening to um, listening to me coach them. And it's really, you know, it's, it's a skill set. It's like anything else, you know, is, is it new age? Yeah, absolutely. But I got to tell you, if you take a look at the coaching industry as a whole, you can see it's a 2 billion a year industry and growing people know, you know, every, every successful athlete has a coach and, and usually a team of coaches, um, you know, and maybe they're not called coaches. Maybe they're called mentors. Maybe they're called nutritionists. Maybe they're called a strength coach. And then we've got a swing coach and we've got a pitching coach and we've got a, a swing doctor and, you know, call them what you will. Look at a f- professional football team. Every position has its own specialized coach. Offense and defense both have their coordinators and their coaches. There's a head coach. Like there are teams of people all, all performance oriented, all with very specific skill sets. There's no different. It's no different in life. When I speak to somebody, whether it's a musician or it's someone in recovery, I'm always like, Hey, you're the CEO of, of your life. You know, just put your name down and put incorporated and that's your business. You know, I'm, I'm the CEO of Charlie Mills incorporated. Um, I'm, and I'm the head of, you know, the, the, the music division, the coaching division, the money division, the romance <laughs> division, the motorcycle division, you know, those are all the divisions. But, you know, we always say that the success of any business comes down to the psychology of the owner. If I'm walking into a business, if I'm walking into my life, Jamie, and I'm not feeling passionate and connected and excited about my life, 
it's going to be reflected in my performance. That's right. And, you know, so when you can tap into and you can begin to, to use the tools that the coaching world offers, you know, it's, it's really basic stuff. It's just a reframing of basic human needs psychology that was all written down and, uh, and started getting taught at the university level in the 40s and 50s. Coaching is, is all about just getting people to connect with what drives them, what's blocking them. What do you, where do you want to go? What do you need to get there? You know, how are you showing up every day in your life? What are you focusing on? Are you focusing on abundance? Or are you focusing on lack? You know, uh, what are some powerful things that you're saying about yourself? Well, you said, you know, you said exactly what I hoped you would say. And it was kind of sneaky of me to, to get you to do it in the way that I did. So my <laughs> apologies for that. But, you no know, worries. I knew that you would probably use the the athletic analogy. OK, mm-hmm. um, you know, football players, professional football players, professional baseball guys, you know, uh, NBA players. These are the folks that, by and large, make the most money in our society. And they all have, as you said, teams of coaches. And we just, as a society, say, well, that's what they're supposed to do. But if you hear about a police officer going to talk to a psychologist, he he might get fired for doing that or, or talking to a life coach because it's seen from a position of weakness. And, you know, especially in the rock and roll world, you know, if I were to say to, to my musician buddies, well, you know, I've got a life coach, they would be like, oh, man, what kind of head case drummer are you? So how do we how do we flip that um, as a Coaching, society? Yeah. And, and and I'll answer that immediately, because that's a great line in the sand that a lot of people kind of get caught up in, in the in the misnomer of it all. Coaching is all about bridging gaps. Coaching is about moving forward. Coaching is about maximizing performance. Uh, I don't care if you're a housewife or a CEO. There are ways that we can, and patterns of success that we have all around us. That, uh, you know, I always say, if you, want to, uh, if, if you want to let me run the world, give me soccer moms as staff sergeants and give me platoons full of people in early recovery. <laughs> and uh, because the skill sets and the patterns, especially someone that's, that's, that has a, a physical addiction to something, because they will go to any length. It's life or death every 12 hours. And they are intuitive. They are creative. They are focused. They are driven. They are goal-oriented. The, the issue becomes they're all of those things in efforts to get that drug that makes, that makes sure that they're not going to get sick every 12 hours if we're talking about opiates. Uh, but when you can pull the opiates off and you st- you're still left with somebody that has all those characteristics, yeah. give me that guy and help me reframe and refocus that guy and put him underneath soccer moms because soccer moms are the most uh, sublimely talented people in the world. They can multitask at a level that no one can. They're ninjas. Uh, I've been around a lot of moms of a lot of my students and the the crap that they tell me that they pull off in a day. I, you know, I don't envy them. I am in complete awe. When we talk about coaching in, in the music industry, I can tell you that my entire, you know, we, you can never tell. I love the rod line that, you know, uh, success favors or, or luck favors the prepared. Uh, in 1996, I was backstage at an Aerosmith concert at Jones Beach here in, in the New York area. And a friend of mine was running the merchandise uh, level. So he'd cut the, the deal with him and, and he just happened to be in New York. And he said, yeah, come on up and, and we'll introduce you to the band. I said, yeah, sure. So we go up and and, uh, and I meet Steven and Joe and the, and the band's milling around. And I see this one guy and uh, 
he's got short hair and a Nehru kind of, uh, he's got like, you know, yoga pants on or not yoga pants like today, but he's got like karate pants on and he's got a Nehru top on and he's got close cropped gray hair and a beard. And he looks kind of like a jazz guy and he's got a laminate and the laminate is in single digits. And if you know anything about rock, you know, the higher your laminate number is, the higher in the pecking order you, you are. And this guy had single digits. And, uh, and I'm thinking, man, who is this guy? And I asked my friend. And he says, oh, come on, I'll introduce you. And it, and it turned out it was a guy named Bob Timmons. And Bob, if you read The Heroin Diaries by Nikki Six, Bob is mentioned extensively in there. Bob got sober on San Quentin with an actor named Danny Trejo. Danny's, uh, you know, Danny's that real rough looking Mexican actor. He's been in, uh, Bobby Rodriguez's films. He was in, uh, he was in the Antonio Banderas movie. I, the name escapes me. The, the first, uh, Quentin Tarantino movie. Uh, oh, from dusk till dawn, I think is. In yeah. That. Before that, even, oh, and okay. I think he was even in that, but anyway, Danny and, and, and Bob Timmons got sober together around San Quentin and, uh, Danny got out a little earlier and Bob soon joined him and they started a, 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 a uh, I don't want to say it, they started a counseling office in Venice, uh, and they became known quickly as the guys that would go from Beverly Hills to the barrio to pull somebody out of a bad situation. They would show up in court for these guys and, uh, and, you know, this is the late 70s, early 80s when the music industry is beginning to shift from the New York and London area really back to, to L.A. And now managers were and were starting to get wind of who this, these guys were. And uh, consequently, you know, Bob ends up on the road with Aerosmith. And I guess you would call him one of the first sober coaches. You know, he wasn't a cop. Uh, but he was there to facilitate one-on-one sessions with anyone in the band. He brought 12-step meetings in if that was what needed to be done. Uh, and he ran, you know, as a therapist, he ran group meetings there. You know, he, he did anything he had to do to keep them connected to what their purpose was, to keep their, them focused on the gift that they were given. In 1996, they were given a second shot at a lucrative career. They were given the opportunity to make music together. That's what they were doing there. They weren't there to get high. They were there to make music and entertain their fans and sell records. And, uh, and that had a, an immense effect on me. Just knowing that there was someone there that, and there was this position that was created out of a need. So 20 years later, when I started having more questions than answers with regards to the, the treatment syntax that was in place and failing, you know, when we're losing 80,000 people in the United States to opioid overdoses in 2018, something's up. Yeah. Something needs to be changed. And I don't know what it is. So, again, I, I know that passionately, if I can deliver some different information in a different way, maybe we can save some lives. And that was really the driver behind everything, you know. And Bob Timmons was one of those those moments, meeting Bob Timmons in 1996, you know, 22 years ago, and having five minutes with that guy, kind of spun my head around and said, wow, that was kind of cool. What can I do? How innovative can I be? Where can I bring, can I bring my experience, my passion for creativity, for, for performing, for delivering a message in a way that I know I can deliver like no other? It's not ego. It's, it's definitely certainty, James. 
You know, yeah. I just know in my bones that we can do something better. You know, so everything that draw, drew me to music, everything about being in a band, everything about playing drums is served everywhere I go. I don't have to have sticks in my hand to call myself a drummer anymore. I'm always going to be a drummer. I'm always going to be a part of that fraternity around the world. You know, whether I can, uh, you know, whether I can still get through the new breed or not, you know, it, I can still tell you that I'm, I'm still that guy. I still love sitting down and making music as much as I ever did. Now I find different, more effective, creative ways to, to touch people the way I used to do it with music. I've, I've, open myself up to new ways to doing that in, in a much more important way and uh, a much more personal way. Well, I mean, I, again, you're, you're doing good work and, you know, we certainly uh, appreciate you coming on here and sharing some stuff uh, with our audience here on the drum shuffle. And, and I want to be respectful of your time. I've already kept you too long, uh, but I do uh, want to get to our tradition on the show, which is, we always ask our guests for a good piece of advice to take out into our day-to-day <laughs> lives. And, you know, I think maybe we just did an hour's worth of good advice, you know, quite honestly. But, you know, when somebody comes up to you, you know, after one of your seminars or, you know, they see you on the street and they say, oh, my gosh, there's Charlie. Hey, Charlie, give me a good piece of advice. What is your elevator speech good piece of advice for, for other musicians? Wow. For other music. Yeah. You know, just stay true to it. Don't look to make, uh, don't look to make money at it. Do it. Always stay connected to the purpose. Always can stay connected to what it was that drove you into the basement, sacrificing countless Saturdays, countless good grades, uh, <laughs> countless tongue lashings from your parents because of said bad grades. Uh, always stay connected to what it was that drove you never lose sight of what it was that lit you up in the first place ever come money, come women, uh, come whatever challenges you have. It's always the passion and the connection to that passion, the why that's going to get you through the tough times. It's always the why that's going to get you up and off the mat when life delivers the unavoidable unforeseen right hook to the jaw that knocks you to the canvas always stay connected to the why the why is what's going to get you up and off the canvas and get you back in the ring swinging man that's gosh charlie that's great advice charlie thank you so much brother for taking time <laughs> out of your busy schedule and, and coming on the drum shuffle we really do appreciate it we've got to have you back sometime for like part two maybe we can just get the whole charlie mills uh coaching seminar out there via the drum shuffle podcast you know let's just give it away what do you think you want to give away your yeah that would that would be brilliant man yeah if anybody's looking to uh to connect you can just hit me up on facebook it's just charlie mills at facebook uh you can go and check out my website uh we're doing a major rebranding and relaunch after january 15th so you can go to go beyond hyphen recovery. That's go beyond hyphen recovery, all one phrase. Uh, and, uh, and type it in, say hello, drop me a line and let me know how I can help anybody that's got a substance issue or anyone that just wants to say hello. Just reach out, man. I'm, I'm a gregarious guy, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that you are. And, you know, I am I'm so glad that we got you on the show. And uh, you're welcome here anytime, brothers. Just keep us posted. If you ever want to come back, we will absolutely clear the airwaves for you anytime, Charlie. 
Thanks, Jamie. Appreciate it. Good luck, everybody. Talk to you soon. All right. We'll see you, man. See you, man. All right, everybody. That's going to wrap up episode 50 of the Drum Shuffle. I certainly appreciate Charlie's time for coming on the show. Um, What a great story that is. Uh, Make sure you check thedrumshuffle.com for links to Charlie's website and connect with him should the need arise. Uh, Just a wonderful guy. So thank you, Charlie, again for coming on the show. I want to thank each and every one of you guys for tuning in. We simply can't do what we're doing here without all of you tuning in week after week. We certainly appreciate it. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen in. Uh, We have some great interviews coming up that you're not going to want to miss. Next week, I'm going to be joined by just the amazing and awesome Dina Toriello. Dina just wrapped up a big run doing the Head Over Heels Broadway musical, just a monster player up in the New York City area uh, and a fantastic human being. So we're going to be joined by her next week. The week after that will be our 52nd weekly episode. So for our one year anniversary, I'm going to be joined by my pal, Rich Redmond. Of course, Rich plays with Jason Aldean and is everywhere. Actor, uh, voice voiceover actor. Uh, Rich just does a ton of great stuff out there. Clinician, author. So we're going to be celebrating our 52nd, anniversary, uh, 52nd weekly episode with Rich Redmond. So you're not going to want to miss those. Of course, we love hearing from you throughout the week. Our email address is the Podcast at gmail.com. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com, and you can find more information on me over at jamieeds.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody.